Well, it's uh, good to be back here at Stony Brook Fellowship. Uh, my wife Karen and I were away on the long weekend. We went to Grand Forks and had a good time there. And just appreciated the fact that we could take a bit of a break as a family. I uh, was also able to, to watch the service, or the sermon at least, afterwards, and was grateful for Andy Woodworth, who's the EMC conference pastor, who came and uh, shared with you, and hope you appreciated uh, the word that he brought last week. I should just give you just a, a heads up that next week I'll also be away. I've been asked to speak at the EMC Young Adult Retreat, and so that will be where I will be, Red Rock Bible Camp, on next Sunday, and Pastor Earl is going to be preaching, so we have a lot to look forward to there. And one other thing I'd just like to say, this Guess Who's Coming for Dinner, I think it's a fun and a good event. I would just encourage you, if you are newer or new-ish to Stony Brook Fellowship, that you consider being a part of this. Sometimes it's, it's hard to to know if you really want to, or it can be a little intimidating, but it's also going to be a really significant way to get to know other families better. Uh, So I think it's a good thing for everyone to sign up for, but especially if you've been connecting with us in the past uh, year or so, uh, this is a unique opportunity to just to sit around a table and to uh, share a meal and get to know one another in a deeper and more meaningful way. There, that's my shameless plug for the, for the, the announcements are now officially over, I promise you that. Now, if you have been a regular attender here at Stony Brook, you will have heard me preach a few different times that if you want to found the peace that God has in store for you, that it's found in between the pillars of God's love and God's control. I love this visual. These are the pillars, these things that we must trust about who God is. He is in control. He is sovereign. And there's nothing in your life that you are facing or will face that is too big for God to handle. But we also need to remember that he uses this sovereignty out of his unconditional love for you and for me. He is loving towards us. He takes a care and an interest in all levels of our life, even in those small details. And so when we really are leaning into and trusting in God's sovereignty and, and his love for us, then we can be in the middle of those pillars and experience peace. And yet when I preach this, I know that if you are, are maybe lacking peace in your life, Or you're with me and say, okay, pastor, this is good, but it leads to an inevitable question. I believe in God's sovereignty and control. I believe in his love for me. Yet, how can an all-loving and all-powerful God still allow evil and suffering in my life, in the people around me, in the world around me? I hear what you're saying, pastor, but I have all of these questions. And they're a good question. It really brings us to the issue of theodicy. Pastor, what did you just call me? No, no, theodicy, which means it's an explanation for how a perfectly good, almighty, and all-knowing God still permits evil and suffering. The term literally means justifying God. You see, this question, how can a loving God allow suffering, that's been asked by people for thousands of years. And so if we haven't found the answer yet, I'm sorry to say you will probably leave this sermon a little bit dissatisfied. It's not really something that we answer so much as that we wrestle through. You see, the problem is the Bible doesn't give us much information on how to justify God, how to answer this big question. It does not give a lot of reason or rationale or explanation for how this loving, powerful God still allows evil and suffering. Instead, Scripture focuses much more on who God is and what God is doing in the middle of the suffering that we experience. And so I'm going to shift our focus. I'm not going to leave this sermon in the area of philosophy or theology. I'm going to bring it into the personal realm. 
And we are going to look at not the silence of Scripture, but where the Bible speaks authoritatively in what God is and who he is and what he does when we are going through very many difficulties. And perhaps, perhaps we can have a firmer understanding of how God can allow suffering by the time that we look at what he does during suffering. I think it will maybe become a bit more clear. We need to start by acknowledging that suffering is a reality. Again, this is not theoretical. This is not philosophical. This is your story, your experience, my story, my experience. And you don't need someone like me to stand up here and say, hey, spoiler alert, suffering is a thing. You all know that this is true. It is your own personal experience. You have watched other people that you love go through hard times. We see suffering in our communities and some of the the negative impact that it has. We watch the news, or if you're smart, you don't watch the news, and you can avoid all of these very nasty things that are happening around the globe. We know that this world is broken. We see and experience and understand that it is full of suffering as a result. You do not need anyone to explain this to you. Suffering is a reality. So this question doesn't mean, should there be suffering or should there not? We know there is suffering. That is true. And suffering is is a very large term that can mean a few different things. Suffering can be of our own making. It can be a direct consequence of our own actions, where we say something or do something that hurts or harms others, that distances us from God. When we make mistakes, suffering can result. For example, if you are texting on your phone and then you look up at the last second and there's a car right in front of you and you hit the bumper of that car, that is now some hardship you've introduced on your own, into your life. That's a form of suffering. Sometimes it can be other people's making, a direct consequence of somebody else's action outside of our control. I just, I know, and we share enough stories here at Stony Brook to know that there are, have been marriages in, in this church and in, in a lot of Christian lives in, in which it takes two people to stay committed. And there are moments when one person says, I will no longer be part of this covenant. And no matter what the other party would like to do, they cannot do enough on their own to keep that relationship together. And so now there is an extreme hardship in life that's been introduced by somebody else's direct action. And then there is lots and lots of suffering and hardship that seems to be for no discernible reason whatsoever. We don't know why. We can't put our finger on the cause. This happens when somebody that we know or love or maybe even we go through a a cancer diagnosis and we don't know why this cancer popped up. We don't know why it would happen to us or to the person that we love. We can't see any reason for it whatsoever. And it's often this category of suffering in which we have questions like, why does God let this happen? Why? How can a loving God who's all-powerful allow this thing to happen to me or someone that I care for? So these are the different types of sufferings that we know are real in our lives. And not just the lives of this world, but Christian lives. And we need to say at the very beginning that Christians are not immune to suffering. We don't get away from the hardship of this world. There is nowhere in the Bible where you will see God promise to keep you from experiencing suffering, loss, and hardship. That is not a promise that God makes. And so anyone who teaches otherwise, is simply not teaching from the Word of God. It's not biblical. 
you won't find it there. Or if you do find it there, you'll be ripping passages out of context and you will miss the bigger picture of what God's Word is revealing to be true for us. But not only is it unbiblical that we somehow, as the people of God, can skirt around suffering, it also doesn't match up with what our lives say. It doesn't match up with our experience. And if we create a theology that says, God will keep me from all suffering, then when we go and encounter suffering, like you will, then your whole theology falls apart. It shatters. You've made it brittle. You've made it fragile because it's based on something that God does not teach is true. So we don't get out of suffering, but we do have a God who's interested. Not only are Christians not immune, the Bible also takes it a step further and clearly teaches that Christ followers should expect to suffer. Follow me for more encouraging <laughs> expect to suffer. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. That's 2 Peter. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. Peter writes to the church who's dispersed and is undergoing persecution. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Let me say that again. Do not be surprised as the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then skipping back to the, down to the summary in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do not be surprised. Not only have we been not given this ability to skip out on suffering, Peter says we should expect it. It's going to come. It's going to test you. It will be in God's will in some way, shape, or form. So be prepared for it. So when you go through tragedy and when you go through difficulty, it is not the sign of a lack of faith. It is the sign of an abundance of faith, of a building faith, of a maturing faith. That is one of the most important things we're going to learn here this morning. Do not misunderstand what the Word of God is telling to us in the hard things in life. So, there is suffering, and we are not immune. In fact, we should expect to go through hard times. Does this mean that God wants us to suffer? Does this mean that He is uninterested, that, that He is cold-hearted towards us? Well, no, this is only the starting point. God does not make His people immune, but He does not leave His people alone. He is invested. He is interested in your life and in your hardship. And so now I want to take the remainder of our time together, having established that this is a reality in our lives. What does God do? What is he like as we go through suffering? The first point is that God limits our suffering. I don't want us to, to get a, a, a bad idea here of thinking that, that everything is getting thrown our way without check or without balance or without limit. For all the suffering that we see, there is so much that God holds back and keeps us from. There's a lot of this we see uh, in the Psalms. I want to turn our attention to Psalm 121. This is something that, that the psalmist understands, and these are the first eight verses of that chapter. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming from this time forth and forevermore. 
So we shouldn't look at this poem in the psalm and think again wrongly that that we're guarded from everything. But we can rightfully understand that the psalmist knows that for everything we experience, we know that we are are crushed, but we're, 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 we're pressed on, but we're not crushed. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're not destroyed. God will keep us. He will protect us. He will not give us more than we can handle. And he will certainly keep us from so much suffering. I get this visual of God holding back a tide of evil and brokenness and suffering and grief. And then in his sovereignty, he allows some things to come through. And so often, when we are in the middle of these hard things, we're so looking at, we're, we're blinded by our experience that we forget or don't appreciate how much God has already protected us from. And when these things come through, and we don't understand them, and we certainly don't like them, we want to know why. Why would you let this happen, God? Why is this the case? And that's a very honest and a very good question to ask. It was the cry of Job's heart. Do you know the story of Job in the Bible? So it's a big, big, long book in the Old Testament. And it's this wonderful story full of dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is when you as a reader or, or a watcher of a show or a viewer, you know something that the characters in that show or story don't know. And we get this prologue in the book of Job where, where we see that, that the devil comes before God and wants to target Job not because he has sinned or been unfaithful. He targets Job because he is righteous and loves the Lord and has followed him. We know the reason for why all this suffering now is enacted in Job's life. But Job doesn't know that. He's just going about his business, loving the Lord, following him, being righteous, and then everything is taken away from him. All of his belongings and his wealth, his personal health and well-being, he even loses the lives of his children. He loses absolutely everything. And Job doesn't know why, and he can't find the answers. And his friends come, and his friends are well-meaning people, and they sit around Job, and they see his suffering, and they supply all of these very unhelpful and wrong answers, saying, there must have been something you did, Job. You must have done something wrong. Think back. Where did you end up going off course? And Job maintains, I didn't do anything. That's not the reason for suffering. They give bad advice. Job must have done something to deserve his fate. And eventually, God shows up and he speaks to Job. Job's been saying, God, why, why, why? And God shows up and he appears to Job in a whirlwind and he doesn't answer the question. We can't read the book of Job without realizing God never answers Job's question. When he appears before him, he says in Job 38.4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then God goes on and on and on and says, I am the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. I am God and you are not. My ways are higher and beyond your ways. And Job understands. And Job believes. And in the end, His response is one of confession and repentance. He says in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is sovereign. He's in control. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job acknowledges that God is above. 
God is beyond. His ways are larger than our ways. We do not always understand why God does what he does. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller puts it this way. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. God is sovereign. He's in control. And it is perfectly natural. And we are invited to cry out to God and say, why are you allowing this to happen? But the Bible is clear that we may never know the answer to that question. So part of what we can do during a time of trial is to shift from needing answers to receiving the comfort and care that God promises to provide. He may never give us the answers that we need, but that doesn't mean that he is distant or uninterested. Because not only does God limit our suffering, he comforts us in our suffering. He is present with us in the valley of the shadow of death, which is um, obviously a reference to Psalm 23. My former colleague, Pastor John, he did a lot of congregational care and hospital visits, and uh, he had this, uh, this theme in his pastoral life that whenever he would visit someone in the hospital and he would read to them Psalm 23, they would die within two or three days. Now, I believe that's because John was understanding that this person was close to death, but it became a bit of a thing. And he would come from a hospital visit. I would say, John, how was the visit? And he said, I read Psalm 23. And I said, no, you didn't. We almost started making funeral preparations right then and there. But he would, he would say Psalm 23 to bring what? He, he, he read it to bring comfort to those who were on the threshold of passing away. And Psalm 23, 4 promises that they are never, ever alone. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And there is something so incredible, so profound, so necessary about having God with you, beside you, holding you up when you go through the dark night of the soul, the valley of the shadow of death. I know many of you have heard me uh, talk about some of the things that have been very hard in my life. And I'm going to share a few stories again that you've heard before. But it's my story. I can't talk about suffering without talking about either my mom passing away from cancer at the age of 61 or about how Karen and I lost our daughter, our stillborn daughter, Selah, at 34 weeks. And it's this birth of our daughter, our stillborn daughter, that loss of her, that, that really has come to my mind as I put this sermon together. And what happened is, uh, we, 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 um, Karen quit feeling movement uh, for this baby. And so then we went into the hospital, and they did test after test after test, looking for a heartbeat. And eventually they gave us the news that there was no heartbeat. We had lost the baby. But one of the hardest parts of all of that, in this shock of grief, was that they sent us home, saying, you need to come back to the hospital the next morning to deliver this child who's no longer alive. And so... How were we supposed to have peace? How were we supposed to settle and sleep on that night, knowing full well what was going to meet us the next day? And somehow we, we grabbed a few hours of sleep, and we were going to the hospital that morning, and then I had a very frank conversation with God. I said, God, today I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I know that, was, that, that is what my day holds. I know it. I'm going there. And I said, God, I've read this in your Bible. I've preached this to your people. Now you need to prove to me, is it true? Will you actually be with me? And, and I laid it out. I said, God, this needs to be true. I don't know how I'm going to do today. I don't know how Karen is going to do today without you. Will you be there? 
will you be with me? In a way that I cannot really explain, all I can say is that the answer to my question was yes. And then we truly did walk through that valley, and it was incredibly hard, but there was a peace that I could not explain that was with us each and every step of the way. God is present with us, but he also gives us extreme comfort in our mourning and in our grief. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. This is how he begins that letter in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, all of them, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. God has promised to comfort you in all of your afflictions. He has not promised to keep you from them, but he has promised in each and every instance to bring you comfort, to bring you peace, peace and to be with you. And it's hard to define, but as Karen and I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, we found God's comfort. And one of the ways we experienced it is as soon as it became known that we had lost our child, there were so many people who had similar stories that, that we had known for years, six or seven years, some of them, and we never knew this about them. And they came to us and they shared their story and they say, this is what comforted me. And they take the comfort of God that they received and they passed it to us. And still today, as we receive that comfort all those years ago, seven years ago, when we hear a similar story, we are also motivated to say and share our story and sit beside someone and say, hey, God has comforted me. Let me also comfort you. This is not only what God does. It's an important part of how we are called to live as the people of God. We receive comfort and we turn around and extend that comfort to others. And so on and so on. And in this way, we can endure the hard things in life. God limits our suffering. He comforts us in our suffering. He also redeems our suffering. He redeems it, meaning God will use our suffering and bring something good out of it. Now, I also don't want you to mishear me in this. This doesn't mean that evil and tragedy and suffering is good. It doesn't make it good. It might not even make it okay. But it does mean that despite all of that hardship, God is big enough to bring something good out of it. My last part of my story, when we did lose our daughter, uh, one of the things that we did on this day when she was born is we had the opportunity to hold her. And I didn't know if I'd want to or not. I didn't know if it'd be too hard, if it would feel too distant, but there was something very personal and important and I was holding my daughter and my father-in-law and mother-in-law. They had driven. As soon as they heard about this, they drove all the way from Alberta. They made it there. They met their granddaughter, who was, who was not breathing, not alive. And they were able to meet her. And they were able to be with us. And my father-in-law was, was there, looking over my shoulder as I held my daughter. And he said, this will make you a better pastor. And he was right. And it was true. And do you want to know what I said? I said, I would much rather be a worse pastor. And I mean it. I would much rather be less effective at knowing what you're going through and have my daughter with me. That might be selfish, 
But that was the truth. That remains to be true. I would not, doesn't make it okay. I would not sign up for this again. It's not like the suffering was somehow legitimized. But it does mean that God is big enough to take even the most hard things and say, I will give you a gift through this difficult time. I often think when it comes to wondering about these questions, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? I would say it's true. It takes a very big God to make sure that suffering doesn't happen. But I also maintain it takes an even bigger, more powerful God to reach into the brokenness and the muck and the mess of our life and to to bring something good out of it, to, to, to make something holy out of it, to give us something that we can truly say is a gift. We were talking about some of these things at our small group this last week, and Hilda mentioned a, a, a quote to me that I found is by, by Rabbi Steve Leader. And he says, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty-handed. If suffering is a reality, if this is what has happened, if this is necessary for whatever reason, we may not know the reason, if we have to go through it, then let's not come out empty-handed. Suffering is redeemed by God. It's also necessary for our emotional and spiritual development. As much as we'd like it not to be, it seems to be in a particular ingredient in what God needs us to walk through in order to be more like him. Paul explains it this way in Romans 5, verse 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, I'll try. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And and so the call of Scripture is not to avoid all suffering. It's not to try to get out of all suffering as soon as possible. There is a deep call in the Christian life to lean into the suffering in our lives, to lean into God's presence and his comfort and to learn as much as possible about him in the process and allow God to comfort us and to give us these gifts and to build us back up so that we can be stronger on the other side. I had another conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago who went through uh, over a year a very big uh, experience of darkness and depression and a difficult time for him and his family. And what struck me about his sharing was that he said, if I had to get rid of all of those lessons that God gave me during that time, I'm not sure I'd go back and change anything. God can redeem our suffering. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it easier. But it means that God can make something holy and good come out of it. But there's still one perspective that we can't forget. And it's not a present perspective. It's one for the future. In the present, God limits our suffering. He, he helps us, com- he comforts us, and he redeems us. But in the future, God will fix our suffering. And there is no way that we can consider the question of how a loving God allows evil and suffering to exist in the world without having an eternal perspective. If we boil this conversation and this question down to this life and this time and this reality, then it will never make sense. It will never add up. But that's not the complete picture. That is not the total story. God is going to do something in eternity that changes everything. And in him, there is justice for all the evil done in this world. I've heard this story, which I think is just a story uh, that, that is meant to prove a point. 
And two uh, um, gentlemen are at the Holocaust Museum, and they're looking at all of these pictures and depictions and stats of the horrific nature of the Holocaust and the genocide that it was. And one person looks at all this evidence and they say, see this? This is why I don't believe in God anymore, right? How can a loving, powerful God allow something like this to happen? A very natural question and a natural response. And yet there is this second person standing there looking at the same terrible uh, information. And he says, I beg to differ. This is exactly why I have to believe in God. Well, why? Why would you say that? Because if there is no God, then Hitler gets away with it. If there is no God, then there is no justice for this evil. There will be no way for all of those wrongs to be made right. And only in God, only in belief and trust in Him, not just in this life but the life to come, will we find justice. Will we find this way for the suffering to be made right? So to look at suffering and then to lead you, uh, let it lead you away from a belief in God does nothing to fix all the problems we have with suffering. In fact, it gets you away from the only thing that offers an explanation. If we allow the problems of suffering to, to, to lessen our trust in, 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 the, in the Lord, then we lessen our trust in, in justice, in the ability for something, somewhere to make this right once and for all. Not only does God offer justice, but in Him there is hope for a time when all wrongs will be made right, when all of these sufferings will cease to be. I have one more quote from Tim Keller, not just because I appreciate Tim Keller, but also because he quotes the Lord of the Rings. So bear with me. There's a quote and a quote here. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought, but alive. Oh, sorry, spoilers, if you haven't. <laughs> I suppose I'm supposed to do that the other way around. It's been out for a while. I think you'll be okay. He finds that Gandalf was not dead, but alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. And the answer, the only way that that answer can be yes, is found in the Christian hope. Is everything sad going to become untrue? And of course, Tolkien would be referring to what we learn together in Revelation chapter 21, where John sees the new heaven and the new earth come at the second coming of Christ, and they are now one. And what will this new reality with Jesus be? John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. <clears throat> For the former things have passed away. There's no satisfactory answer to suffering in this world. It's hard. It's terrible. It sucks. And there's going to be no pat answers for that that you find in the Bible or you find from this pulpit. But we know that God cares deeply about what you go through. We know that he comforts you in a way that no one else can. We know that he redeems and brings some good things out of the deepest, darkest night. And we know that he has made a promise that in him and only him will all of this cease to be. 
And there is an eternal perspective in which God will eradicate suffering once and for all. And we can live in that reality with him forever. So allow your present suffering, whatever you are going through, to deepen your hope in Jesus, not take it away. Because in him alone is hope. So what have we learned? What have we learned about God? What have we learned about suffering? Well, there is one last crucial piece of the puzzle. Everything that we've learned is all proven true by Jesus. It's all proven true by Christ. So we've learned that suffering is a reality. Well, as God in flesh, Jesus experienced the fullness of human suffering. He came down to our level and he experienced loss and grief and disappointment, frustration and pain and torture and death. He was spared none of it. Suffering was a reality for him. We learn that God limits our suffering and we look at what Jesus did in his mission and ministry on earth. He came and he healed those who were sick and afflicted. He reached out to those marginalized and, and brought them into community. He taught his followers to literally bring heaven to earth. He limited suffering in each and every way he could. We learn that God comforts us in our suffering and we see the promises of Christ that he left with his followers that he will send his spirit to abide with us, to be with us and provide a peace that passes all understanding and guards our hearts in him. We learn that God redeems our suffering and then we read in scripture that Jesus is our true redeemer, that as he suffered and died on the cross, he did so to redeem all of us from sin, to bring all of us into right relationship with God. He is our Redeemer. And we learn that God will fix our suffering. As we read through the Word of God, we read that Jesus also rose again and is our way, our path, our truth to having all wrongs be made right and to living in that promise that we read in Revelation 21. So church, we don't have any easy answer to suffering, but we do have a Savior who endured it all to limit, to comfort, to redeem, and to fix everything that we find ourselves walking through. Let's pray. God, I don't know what everyone's going through or what they've gone through or what they will go through. And I really wish I could stand up here and say, hey, the Bible says everything is going to be okay, it's going to be easy, it's going to be fine. But we know that the Bible says that, that we will experience hard things, but that you are in, with us in the middle of it all. So I pray that we would lean into your promises, no matter what questions we may have, and that we would learn to trust you more and more, no matter what we are going through. Because you are loving, and you are sovereign. 